to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now this Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you for this, your word. Thank you for preserving it for us to have this day. Would you now open our eyes to behold wondrous things? Help us, Holy Spirit, help us that we might understand your word, that we might be transformed by the word. And would you help me, your servant, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you see when you look in a mirror? What do you see when you look in a mirror? The obvious answer is, I see myself. But what do you really see? What do you really see when you look in a mirror? This week I read the story of a young man named Bobby. Bobby suffers from what is called body dysmorphic disorder, or BDD. BDD is a mental health condition that has caused Bobby to see himself in the mirror as completely different than who he truly is. Though his face is rather ordinary, his reflection, what he sees of himself in the mirror, is distorted. What he sees is a hideous face with a crooked nose. He sees scars all over his face. He even sees his flesh rotting and starting to fall off. So serious is his case of BDD that he calls his mother from work up to 15 times a day just to be reassured that the monster he sees in the mirror is not reality. Bobby is completely unable to see himself for who he truly is when he looks in the mirror. While we may not all suffer as severely as Bobby, we are more like him than we may readily admit. For when we consider the tremendous transformation that accompanies our salvation through Jesus Christ, when we take to heart what we were already assured of this morning from 2 Corinthians 5, do you remember? If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away, behold, The new has come. When we take this truth, that truth, and we take it to heart, we are confronted with a reality that completely transcends any earthly view that we may have of ourselves. You see, when we look in the mirror, we are seeing a glorious reflection of God's wondrous glory. When we look in the mirror, we are seeing, when we look there, 
We're seeing an image bearer of God. We're seeing a worshiper, an image bearer made to worship God by reflecting his glory to all around. But like Bobby, we're kept from seeing ourselves as we truly are. Maybe not because of the same thing, the real thing from which he suffers, but perhaps it's because of sin or other kinds of worldly lies and misconceptions. Maybe things someone has said about us or maybe what we say about ourselves. We look in the mirror and we fail to see past the old so that we can behold the new. So why not then, also like Bobby, why don't we make a phone call? Can't imagine being his mother getting that call. What a calling to reassure him of truth. But why don't we be more like him and call upon our heavenly father? Why not call upon him and ask him for assurance? Why not then turn to God himself and and ask him, what do you see in me, God? I know what I see when I look in the mirror, but God, what do you see? That's a very important question. It's an important question. This week, we're continuing to answer another important question, that age-old question, who am I? So far, in the two weeks prior, we've answered by saying that we are image bearers, and we've answered by saying that we are worshipers. This morning, we turn to 2 Corinthians 3 here before us for the third part of the answer, and we find the answer to be, I am a reflection. So who am I? Who are you? We are a reflection. To begin our examination of what it means to be a reflection, I want us to explore the immediate context of the passage before us. In a topical series like this, we tend to jump around from passage to passage. So I do want to take a moment to explore the immediate context because it helps us understand what it means to be a reflection. So the first thing I want us to see is that from the text is we want to consider the veil that conceals. So again, if you're taking notes, this is the first of three, the veil that conceals. In this passage, Paul is writing a letter, right? He's written a letter. Uh, It's one of many that he's written. Uh, He's addressing the church at Corinth about the nature of his apostolic ministry. For there are some in the church who reject him, They reject him, and furthermore, they reject the gospel of grace that he preaches. They are those who reject the freedom found in the Spirit and embrace a system of works that work alongside faith in Christ to justify themselves before God. A very common problem in the early church and a persistent problem even in the church today. In fact, this same vocal minority saying these things They even go as far as to say that Paul's suffering for the gospel was proof that his gospel wasn't genuine. That sound familiar? This whole letter is his response to that. Not only the false teaching of works righteousness, but Paul is making in this letter, if you know this whole letter, a very personal and a very passionate plea for the church to rejoice in suffering to see that suffering for Christ is indeed glorious. Not a negation of the gospel, but a confirmation 
of the gospel promises. In chapter three, Paul is making this case by setting up a contrast, a contrast between the old covenant, that is what we would call the law of Moses, and more specific to this text, the ceremonial law of Moses that was given to regulate worship and regulate ritual cleanness before God. Paul is contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant that is found in Jesus Christ. That new covenant which fulfills the ceremonial laws of Moses and sets believers free. Free and confident boldness and lasting hope. He's contrasting the old and the new. And to illustrate this contrast between old and new, Paul appeals to Moses. He appeals to Moses and to the veil that he wore over his face after he met with God at Mount Sinai and in the tabernacle. You may not be familiar with that. We need to understand that. Paul here gives an illustration. We need to understand the illustration. So turn with me quickly to Exodus 34. Stick around long enough and we'll make our way to Exodus 34 when we go back to the book of Exodus. But this morning, I want us to just look starting in verse 29. Exodus 34, verse 29. It reads, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, so he's coming down with the Ten Commandments, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses calls to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken to him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with God. You see then that when Moses met with the Lord, his face would shine. He was before the Lord and his face would shine with God's glory. And how did the people respond to this? It says they were afraid. So much so that Moses would cover his face with a veil so that they wouldn't see that glory. Then when Moses returned to meet with God, as he did over and over in the tabernacle, as he went in there, he would remove the veil. When he go before God, he removed the veil, and then he would come out shining, and he would put the veil back on, and so on, and so on, as it goes. Now I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11, the verses just before the ones we read this morning. Interesting words here for the old covenant that Paul uses. Now if the ministry of death... It's the old covenant carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the spirit, the new covenant, have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the old covenant, the ministry of righteousness, the new covenant, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Here Paul continues to contrast the old and the new covenants by contrasting the glory that accompanies them. 
He says that the old covenant is passing away. It's being brought to an end. But the new covenant is permanent. Then in verse 12 and following from where we read, he completes the contrast by pointing out that while the glory of the old covenant is concealed by both the literal veil that covered Moses' face, and then also he mentions a figurative veil that covers hard and unrepentant hearts, the glory of the new covenant, he says, is in no way concealed. It is completely revealed, not concealed, but revealed by having veils, literal and figurative veils, removed, removed by Christ and removed by his full and final work. Veils no longer keep us from beholding God's glory. Do you see the contrast? Paul saw it very clearly. It was not only illustrated by Moses and and his veil, but also by what he saw in the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues of his day, and by what we can still see in synagogues, even to this very day. Look again at verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. It's most likely that Paul here is referring to something called a talit, or talit. It's a prayer shawl. Maybe you've seen these. It's a prayer shawl that Jewish worshipers would drape over their shoulders and thus flow down over their heart. Sometimes they'll even wear them on their head, depending on what group they belong to. They'll wear it over their head, so then it flows down over their shoulders and then over their hearts. And they do this as a visual reminder, a visual reminder, a tangible reminder to obey the law of Moses, to obey God's word and not to pursue the selfish desires of the heart and eyes and so fall away from the Lord. But for Paul, and he was very familiar with this, this talit is a visual reminder for him. It's a reminder of a heart that has not yet been changed. It's a reminder of a heart that is still bound by the law's demand for a righteousness that comes from within rather than a righteousness that comes from Christ. A heart covered by a veil, a veil meant to conceal a glory that is only passing away. Well, we don't need to see, maybe you have seen, but you can see pictures later if you want to look them up, but we don't need to see a a literal talent on someone's shoulders or on their head in order to see the veil that really lies over people's hearts. Our world is full of people who seek a righteousness of their own, people who seek to be justified by the good deeds they do in the name of themselves or whatever other false god they serve. We see all around us people trapped in sin, people bound for death, thinking that they are free. They think they're free, but they're not. They're truly slaves to the devil himself. The world is surely full of people with veils over their hearts. That leads us to another important question. How does such a veil get removed? There's a veil on my heart that I can't see and grab a hold of. How does it get removed? How can a a fading glory of righteousness by works, how can a failing glory, fading glory, be eclipsed by the enduring glory of the gospel? 
brings us to our second point this morning, the God who transforms. The God who transforms. Only God himself can remove such a veil. Paul makes this point very clear, and he does so in a very Trinitarian way. If you look at the text in verse 16, he says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In verse 14, he says, quote, only through Christ is the veil taken away. And in verse 17, he says, now this Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And in verse 18, this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, from all eternity, God has existed as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the scriptures, God reveals himself as such to us. He reveals himself as Father, the Father who has chosen a people for his own before the foundation of the world, the Father who at the proper time sent forth his one and only eternal Son, Jesus Christ. He sent him into the world to take on flesh and to live and to die and to rise again for his people. And when Jesus returned, when he ascended to heaven, the Father and Son sent the Spirit into the world to regenerate dead and sinful hearts, to give the gift of faith to his people, and to work in them to produce gospel victory. And here in this, these verses, we see this pattern very clearly. Because of Christ and his work, the veil is lifted. The veil is lifted when people turn to him. And how do people turn to him? They turn to him because they are being, look at verse 18, they're being transformed. As we turn, we're turned because Christ died for us. The Father chose us and the Spirit changes our hearts. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ. And then the Spirit himself continues his work, continues God's work, and we're being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from glory to glory. I want to do a whole month worth of sermons just on that phrase. From one degree of glory to another, from glory to glory. You see, until the Lord removes the veil from your heart, you will be unable to behold his glory. There's nothing you can do to remove the veil on your own. You say, well, yeah, but I had faith. Well, you did. Praise God. But even the faith that calls you to turn to the Lord is itself a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. And this act of turning to the Lord by grace and through faith, it does something. It does a lot, right? But it breaks the bonds of slavery to sin and death. It shatters the shackles that bind us. And it gives us, what does he say here? Freedom. It gives us freedom. Not freedom from God. Something that our lost and dying world is absolutely obsessed with. and has been since the fall. Not freedom from God. Freedom to live for God. Freedom to obey God's law is a true delight for our soul. Freedom to become who we already are in Christ Jesus. Freedom to behold God's glory as we are literally transformed from death to life, from one degree of glory to another. I'll repeat the verse again. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. 
Behold, the new has come. God removes the veil. It is people, yes, even us, who are followers of Jesus Christ, who craft our own veils and try to hide ourselves behind them. Like Adam and Eve, remember them? After they sin, what happened? They realized they were naked, they were ashamed, sin has entered, broken the world, and they wanted to cover themselves, to put a veil over themselves, to cover their nakedness. So they grabbed some fig leaves, stitched them together in some way to cover themselves. Like them, we seek refuge from our ongoing sin and shame with a myriad of acts of self-righteousness and self-justification. We're no different. Rather than looking in the mirror and seeing ourselves as image bearers of God who've been called to worship him in spirit and in truth, we see flaws, we see imperfections, some are real, some are imagined, and what do we do? Do you look in the mirror and just see all your failures? Do you look in the mirror and say, well, I wish I looked like so-and-so, they're such a good and righteous person. Do you look in the mirror and say, I hate myself? I hate the way I look. I hate the way I was made. I hate that I did this or that. Do you do that? I do. I think we all do if we're honest. What comes next is heartbreaking. We try to take righteousness and wear it like a mask. Try to wear it like a covering completely neglecting, forgetting, not embracing, whatever word you want to use there, the righteousness that is already ours through Jesus Christ. Because he took on our sin and shame. He bore it on the cross and he gave us his righteousness. We are not masks. We are not veils laid upon fading glory. If you are in Christ, You truly are a reflection of God's glory. And so that brings us to our third and final point this morning. A life that reflects. A life that reflects. What does it look like then? What does it look like? I mean, it's not going to change when I go home and look in the mirror. I'm still going to see what I always see. I'm still going to remember those things. Sometimes it's always on my mind. Sometimes it sneaks back up. What does it look like for us to do what I just said? Well, I think it begins first with recognition. Recognition that moves to celebration. Recognizing and celebrating the immense intimacy we have with God through Jesus Christ. We have what only Christians have. Fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. You see, not only was the temple veil torn when Christ died upon the cross, but as we've already shown, the veil over our hearts was torn. It was removed. So special intimacy with God is no longer reserved for the privileged individuals. It's no longer just for people like Moses and the priests. Have you thought about this in a while? The God of the universe... The God who created all things out of nothing 
dwells in your heart because the Holy Spirit lives within you and you have continual and intimate relationship with God? Do you ever really stop and think about that? It's hitting some of you. I see the whoa. That's what it's meant to generate within us. Whoa, the Holy Spirit, not, not some sub-deity, the eternal God of the universe, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, dwells within you. So he leads you. He encourages you. He convicts you of sin and righteousness and judgment. He renews you. He seals his promises upon you. And he guarantees for you that you do indeed belong to God. And even when you don't feel like it, you do. Because God's spirit dwells in you. As a reflection of God's glory, you have free and complete access to fellowship with God. Having a life that reflects God's glory, the second thing, it also includes what Paul calls beholding. Beholding the glory of the Lord. It's there in verse 18. Now that word beholding in the original language is quite interesting. For sake of time, I'll just call it instructive. It's got two major shades of meaning, and I think both are appropriate and helpful here. First, it means to take a long, hard look. Anybody ever say that to your kids? You take a long, hard look at what you're about to do. You see, in Paul's day, mirrors were made of polished metals. Made of polished metal. And when you looked at them, they produced a clouded, fuzzy, and somewhat distorted image. One had to really look long and hard to see what he wanted to see. Likewise, Paul is calling believers like you and me, like the church in Corinth, to take a long, hard look at God, at the glory of God, to study the Lord in his glory, to see how his quality and character is reflected in them, in you. Practically, how do you do this? Well, you study God's word. You meditate upon God's word. You commit God's word to memory, and you even discuss it with other people. You can think upon your salvation and your calling as his people. You can share your lives together and talk about all the wonderful things God is doing. You can come alongside one another in your sufferings and in your hurts. You can point one another to Jesus. The veil's been lifted. You can behold God's glory. Though like that polished metal mirror, remember, you won't see it for all of its beauty and majesty. You won't see him in total until that day you see him face to face in heaven. But what a great thought. There's another shade of meaning for beholding, and I think it's just as instructive. It also means to reflect that which you looked hard to see. So it's not only taking a long, hard look, but it's also reflecting that which you took a hard, long look at. In other words, it's not just enough to think about and study God's glory. We're to be so consumed with it that we end up reflecting it. Again, Paul's speaking to a group of people that didn't have nice mirrors like we do today. Um, someone would be looking and looking at themselves a long time 
in this polished piece of metal. And you can imagine the light. You have to do it just right. So the light's coming out. What's happening to the light? It's bouncing off there and coming back on that person. And so you might come in and see someone and they're like glowing. They're quite literally glowing as the light bounces off of them. They're reflecting that which is reflected already. They're reflecting the light. They shine. Likewise, we reflect God's glory when we live for him. When we love and serve him and love him and serve others as he has served us. Man, I want to talk more about that and I'll do it next week. Because that's going to be the heart of next week's sermon. So finally, uh, having a life that reflects God's glory includes also rejoicing. Rejoicing in the transformation that the Spirit is bringing to us. Central to the passage before us and central to our lives as Christians is a recognition that we are being transformed. If you belong to Christ, you're being transformed. God is working upon you. He's working upon us from the inside out to make us more and more like Jesus. Yes, we're called in God's word to obedience. We're called to live for him. But never to think that we can do it on our own. We're not like that awesome birthday or Christmas present that requires batteries to function and we forgot to get batteries. So we scour the house running everywhere, stealing batteries from different things just to get it to work. We all know that, right? We're not like that. Back to what I said earlier, you have the resurrection power of Christ living within you. And that is more than you need. More than you need to become what you were saved to be. And when we fail to live as we ought, which all of us do, it is that same power, not some other power. It's that same power that leads us to repent. It's that same power that renews us. And it's that same power that keeps on keeping on as it transforms us from one degree of glory to another. You are becoming what you already are. You are becoming who you already are in Christ Jesus. You are being sanctified in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I'll conclude this way. As God's image bearers set free to worship him in spirit and in truth, you reflect his glory as you are being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. So who am I? Who are you? We are image bearers. We are worshipers. And we are reflections. As those redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we are reflections of his glory. I began this morning by asking you what you see when you look in the mirror. And I know that many of us will never be content with what we see there, earthly speaking at least. But I hope you can look there now with new eyes. The eyes that God gave you, the eyes of faith. I hope you will look and see God's amazing work in you. And hey, Christians, we're called to share our lives. When's the last time you encouraged someone? When's the last time you looked at a brother or sister in the Lord, maybe even one of your children, or hey, children, how about your parents? I see the transforming power of God at work in your life in this way. Encourage one another. Or perhaps we can look in the mirror 
I can say these words. I'll close with this brief poem that John Newton once wrote, and I just find it good to repeat this. And I'll close this way. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I will be his, like him. And for now, I'm content to be who I am. Amen and amen.